before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so, it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with, not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I want to, um, to do an exercise to start with you. Um, I want you to imagine for a moment a truly impressive church. The kind of church that you think your friends and your family, maybe your colleagues or your neighbors would be interested in and would be drawn to. Maybe just visualize it. If you want to close your eyes, do that and just, just kind of see it in your mind's eye. What would it look and feel like? Who would be there? What type of people? How many people? Where would it be? What type of building would it be meeting in? What what would the services look and feel like? What kind of leaders would it have? What kind of sermons? What would the worship music and style be? What would the kids' ministry look like? What kind of drinks and refreshments would be on offer? Just visualize that for a moment in your mind. And so what would people's impressions of this church that you're visualizing, that you can imagine, be and why? I think where we go to in, in, you know, and I think it'd be too long, but where you start to think and what you start to visualize there helps you to discover the values that you really believe in, what, what most impresses us and, and what, we, what we think is most important. And so what we think we need and what we think our, our friends really need. Now, inevitably, that will be shaped by our wider culture, as it is for all of us, and, and what our culture values, because we can't help but be influenced by the world in which we find ourselves. Now, the reason that the church in Corinth was dividing over uh, into factions over their favorite leaders, as we saw last week, is because they were returning to worldly standards and values of their culture and how they went about church life. In their day, there was a big priority on wisdom and on power. And so they valued their leaders according to how wise or how powerful they appeared. And and as the Apostle Paul is thinking through these categories of wisdom and power, he writes to them and and he realizes that they're returning to the values of the world around and the culture um, as, as their priority. And so he writes to them and indeed to us to lead us back to Christ and away from those things. Because if we turn to the world and the culture around us and its values, then we end up actually walking away from Christ and the Christian message, which is the good news. So what happens in in this section that Beck's read for us is that he develops this this theme as he's thinking about wisdom and power, and and he turns their values and their world upside down. Now, 
this is just a simple, well, relatively simple summary, as simple as I could get it, uh, a summary of the text today. This is what we're going to see in this sermon, I hope. We encounter true wisdom and power in the wisdom and power of God in Christ crucified. The wisdom and power of God in Christ crucified, which is on display in the church and is modeled in faithful Christ-centered ministry. So it's kind of, it's the main point really is the wisdom and power of God in Christ crucified. But then we see these two ways that, that this works out in this text. The wisdom and power of God in Christ crucified. So Paul knows well Corinth. He's lived there for a few years. He knows the culture. He knows the system uh, and the standards of the world that are around at that time. And so although at this point when he's writing, the Romans are, are the big dogs in town, there's still very much a strong Greek influence in the culture and in the society. And of course, Corinth is in Greece. So, so you would expect that. And the Greeks are famous, aren't they, for their thinkers and their philosophers. You think of Plato and, and other people like that. They're famous for their love of learning and their wisdom, especially the ancient Greeks. And so that's very much a value in Corinth, wisdom. But also there's lots of people from a Jewish background in the city who have settled in Corinth. And Jews of that day, well, what they loved is power and strength. See, they had been a disempowered people who had taken an absolute beating from one superpower after the other for 600 years. And so they were looking for God to display his power in saving his people and his Messiah leader to come and make Israel great again. And so they're all about power. And Corinth is a Roman colony, and so it's full of people, and it's full of people trading and all sorts of other things, trying to make a name for themselves, scaling, scaling the greasy pole of politics and big business in the empire, in this strategic city. And so society on that day was structured on these different scales with some people at the top and some people very much at the bottom. And, and the first one, you've got the wise, the clever people, and then you've got the, the foolish, or, or we could just say the stupids. And then you've got the, the, the powerful and the weak. And you've also got the influential and the lowly. The influential, others do what they say, and the lowly, nobody really cares what they think. Or what they care about. Jews demand signs of power. Greeks look for wisdom. And the influential and the noble are very much rising to the top at Corinth. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away, but not much has changed, has it? I wonder if we are as familiar today and aware of the values and the standards of our culture and the world around us as Paul is of his, or are we just taken along by them? We just buy into them, unthinkingly go along with the standards and the values of the world around us. The first step to knowing how to live well in a time and a place that God has planned for us to live is to engage with the world around us. What people value most, what most impresses them, what they care about, drill deep into that and understand that. Now, I think today, wisdom, power, influence, still pretty high up there for us. Maybe we could add some more for Birmingham 2024. Popularity. Being liked. How many followers you have. How many likes your photo gets on social media. How attractive or cool we are. How on trend. Maybe even how authentic and true to self someone is. Perhaps how wealthy someone is. 
And yet here we are sat in the meeting of a Christian church and the defining symbol of our faith that so many of us here have based our lives on is a Roman cross. Has it ever struck you how strange that is? We're used to it, but historically speaking, it's very, very peculiar. The cross was one of the most shameful things in the ancient world. The Romans had devised it, not only as an instrument of torture for criminals and revolutionaries, but also an instrument of public humiliation. As a warning to everyone, they would crucify people in public places so everyone could see this is what happens if you cross the Romans. And it was so bad that a Roman citizen could not be executed that way, however serious their crimes. It was so repulsive that the Roman emperor Constantine eventually outlawed it in the 4th century. The Roman cross does not say power and wisdom and influence. It says loser. It says weak. It says shameful. We've detoxified it and we've domesticated it. And and the most likely time you'll see it now is on a beautiful piece of jewelry or in a nice piece of artwork or something. But it was not like that. This was a a piece of graffiti that... um, they found from the third century in Rome. And it just shows really helpfully what people thought of Christians and what they said about Christians at that time. These Christians who worship this supposed God and Savior who died on a cross. And here is a picture of a man with a donkey's head on a cross and another man bowing down to worship him. And it has a caption. And the caption says this, Alex Amenos worships God. It is laughable, embarrassing even that these Christians, what they believe about Jesus and they worship this man who was crucified on a Roman cross. It's weak and it's pathetic and it's stupid and it's shameful and we're going to graffiti it over town. Paul writes in verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness. But verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified. And that is because in the message of the good news of Christ crucified, God turns the whole system and standards of the world on on its head. Firstly, God has brought down all all the standards and values that the world uh, elevates up. Particularly, we see here wisdom and power. And Paul takes this quote in verse um, 19 from, from the prophet Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. You see, what's happened is human society has constructed and built up this whole system of life and thought and values and living that is away from God and ignoring God and against God. And it's based on wisdom and power and all of these other things. And here God is proactively dismantling and deconstructing and undermining that whole system of life in society. So many live and act as if it's by our own wisdom or our learning that we can reach up to God and know him and capture the secrets of the universe. Or by our own power and strength, we can create a perfect world and perfect lives for ourselves. But the world in its wisdom, or through its wisdom, does not know God. We can't and we do not unlock the truths of the universe by our own learning or our understanding. However smart we are, however educated we are. By our own power, we can't save ourselves. 
can't grab life to the full. God in his infinite wisdom has not made those the pathways that lead us to him and to eternal life. Imagine what the world would be like if that was the way that we got there. If people could reach up to God by their own intellect and their own wisdom and it was the brightest and the smartest and the most educated of us who got there, the rest of us left in the dust. What pride there would be and what competition. What about if only the most powerful could experience life to the full? Wouldn't that just be so unfair? Only those who make it to the top get a shot at a good life of meaning and purpose. God has made foolish the supposed wisdom of the world. He's brought that whole system of worldly wisdom and power down. And as he does, he shows it for what it is. He exposes its frailties. And so what Paul does, he doesn't just understand and engage with these values of the world of his day. But in the gospel, he shows and exposes all of their shortcomings and how ultimately they don't deliver. It's why here... He's so aggressive in attacking this stuff and taking it down. It's not just that he got out of bed the wrong side this morning and he's in a bit of an angry day having a rant. No, he wants to keep people from going down this blind alley that leads nowhere good. So he brings down these things, God does. But secondly, he replaces it with something better. God has elevated up something that seems so stupid and so pathetic. But actually, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's, he's, he's flipped the whole thing on its head. So, so this is the way of the world. We start with wise, powerful, influential at the top and the others at the bottom. And the whole thing is turned on its head by God. He's putting things back the right way. It's us that's got it all wrong and flipped it around. True wisdom and true power is the good news of Christ crucified. It is the power to save those who believe. And it's the path by which we come to know God and come into a new relationship with him. Now just think about how weird and maybe even a little crazy this is to believe. The execution of this poor Jewish man under the Romans 2,000 years ago, a man who wrote no books, didn't even go to school. He wasn't particularly powerful or influential in his life. His execution on a Roman cross would become the means by which billions of people all the way through history and all across the world are forgiven of all the wrongs and the things they've done that are sinful in their lives. They're given a new relationship with God. The God of the universe, their relationship to him is restored. It, when you kind of tell it like that, you're kind of like, yeah, a little bit crazy, isn't it? can forgive people for thinking that, that we've got a screw or two loose. And to be honest, I don't get how it works. But it does. What seems so weak, what seems so foolish, what seems so laughable to us and the world, it turns out is the wisdom of God and is the power of God to save. And so verse 21, God is pleased. God is pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, the message of the cross, Christ crucified to save those who believe. This is only a plan that God could come up with. His power and wisdom, at least to our salvation and our life. I just love here how it brings him great delight. 
can also almost kind of personify God with this kind of wry smile on his face, just satisfied and delighted and content. And so just like God, let's be pleased in these things. That God's flipped the world back the way it should be. Let's delight in and marvel at that. Let's not stumble or see it as foolish. Let's not scoff or reject what he has done in Christ. But let's believe and receive and delight. Thirdly, God doesn't just turn the whole value system and the standards of the world on his head, but actually he just takes it totally off the scale. I haven't got it, but the next slide should just be just showing like there's just no comparison. Verse 25 is absolutely key. It's at the heart of our text, if you look at it. For the, uh, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. A pastor in London, um, Andrew Wilson, says this. I, think, I just read this this week. so helpful. The most apparently ridiculous thing that God has ever done, it turns out, is far smarter than the cleverest thing that human beings have ever come up with. The most apparently ridiculous thing God has ever done is, it turns out, far smarter than the cleverest thing that human beings have ever come up with. John Rottenby was telling me this week about uh, the next phase in computing. Apparently, it's called quantum computing. And he was saying, look, Johnny, it's like computers as you know them, but you just can't, you just, it's totally off the scale. You cannot compare it. You do not know what's coming. And so it is with God's power and his wisdom compared to ours. As Johnny read at the start, his thoughts are not our thoughts and our ways are not his ways. In fact, they are so far above us, they can't be compared. It's like comparing Man City men's football team with Lee Bank under fives. It's just, there's no, there's no comparison. It's not just that God brings down our notions of wisdom and power. But listen, it's also that he has what we are looking for in bucket loads. Think about it. What are people seeking in wisdom and in great learning? Ultimately, it's to know the things about life and about the world and even the meaning of life and the secrets of the universe and ultimately, I think, to know a God if he is there and the truth of God. What are people seeking in power? To make life better, to make the world a different place, whether it's just for me or for others as well, to to change the way that people experience the world. Listen, it's not wrong to look for these things. I think that's integral to being human. But it's a question of how and where we find true wisdom and true power. Christ is the one in whom we discover. Christ is the one in whom we get access to true wisdom. He is the one who can give true power that will make our lives and the world a better place through his resurrection from the dead and his renewal of all things. See, Christ has what we're looking for and he has it in abundance. And he even offers these things to us. But you know what? So often people won't come to him. We won't come and we won't receive it because he doesn't have them or he doesn't give them in the way that we hope or the way that we expect or the way that we're looking for because it just sounds so foolish or just whatever other reason it is. It is in weakness that his power is experienced. It is what sounds foolish at first that actually brings real wisdom. It is in dying to self and our system and standards of living that actually we get life to the full.
This is the true wisdom and power of God in Christ crucified. That's the big idea for us to get our heads and our hearts around. And, and then we see it play out. And, and secondly, in, in verses 26 to 31, we see it on display in, in, the, in the church. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what some of you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Listen, if if wisdom and power, if the wisdom and power of God seems foolish, and seems weak, then I guess it follows that the people that he delights to save will also seem pretty foolish and seem pretty weak. Won't probably be greatly influential. By and large, the church at Corinth was not all that impressive. A few were wealthy. A few were successful and powerful. We saw Chloe last week and her business interests. But generally, the church was drawn from the poor. They were not wise by human standards. They were not influential. They were not the great and good. They were not of noble birth. And listen, even those who did have some things going in their favor by the standards of their day, maybe uh, Chloe as an example, whether they're powerful or wise or whatever else, they held them lightly because they knew that they could not save themselves by their own wisdom and they could not walk the pathway to God by that and, and, and by their own power, um, sorry, by their own power save themselves or by their own wisdom walk the pathway to God. So even if they did have some things going for them, they knew they weren't really of any advantage to them in the end. And so the church at Corinth was not greatly impressive. And listen, it's always been that way in the church of a crucified Savior. Apart from when that church has turned away from the crucified Savior. Most spiritual revivals of history where people have turned to Christ in their droves have generally been amongst the poor and the everyday people, not the great and the good. Can I say in in the nicest, most complimentary way possible, we aren't all that impressive either. I mean, look around. <laughs> I love you guys dearly. You really do. You're looking at me. Yeah. For, for, foremost example. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're hardly the great and the good of Brum. This isn't the smartest room in this city this morning. This isn't the richest or the most influential. We're not the most attractive or the most popular. We're not the most cool or on trend. We're certainly not the most powerful. Maybe, just maybe, we might be relatively high up on the kind of being authentic and true to yourself thing, but certainly not in a way that the culture out there values or cares about. We are ordinary, everyday people. We are teachers and cleaners. We are carers and office workers. We are young families struggling in the cost of living crisis. We are single mums battling through each day and each week. We are disabled and struggling with chronic illness. We are those unable to work or in low paid work. We are those who are junior in our jobs and in our careers and, and sometimes the most inexperienced in our workplace. We are those suffering under the weight of poor mental health. We are those seeking some of us asylum in a new country, that we are those far away from home and family and culture. 
We are those who feel out of place where we live. We are spectacularly ordinary. Generally and genuinely pretty weak and foolish in the eyes of the city of Aldous. Even if you don't feel that way personally and you're a little bit offended by this, you think, actually, I've got some stuff going for me, Johnny. Just think about us as a church together for a moment. I can tell you the gate church looks weak and foolish in the city around us. We have no money. We have no security in our buildings. We'd be on the street next week. We're pretty small. In the context of a big, bustling city, we're hardly noticeable. So much around us is bigger and better and more impressive in the city. There's other places that people are drawn to and flocking to in, in their droves, seeking life to the full, whether it's the sports stadiums or the pubs and the clubs or the shops and the brands and the businesses, whatever it is. And even if you do personally think you've got some things going for you in some way, which I'm sure some of us have, we've got some smart people here with PhDs. We've got some... People in pretty good jobs have got doctors and stuff like that. Maybe some people even have some power in the workplace. But you do know that none of this gets you the inside track to God, don't you? You do know that none of that counts for actually what really matters. It's just not that kind of power or wisdom. It's just not comparable. So don't lean into and rely on those things as if they're the fundamental and ultimate things about life for you. Hold them loosely. and Recognize that every last one of them is a gift from a good God to you that you did not earn and did not deserve, however hard you've worked. Rely on Christ alone. Because God chose us not because we're impressive, but because we are foolish, weak, and the lowly ones of the world. And he wants to shame the wise and the powerful and the strong. He wants to nullify the ones that are by the ones that are not. And why did he do that? Verse 29, so that no one may boast before God, but verse 31, the one who boasts, let them boast in Christ. Let them boast in the Lord. You see, the church is to be this living, this breathing display of the glory and the wonder of the good news of Christ crucified. This dynamic trophy cabinet uh, of, 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 uh, for the world to look on and see the power of God and the wisdom of God at work in the lives of ordinary and everyday and even rubbish people. Ask yourself the question, around the gate church, who is it who's been made more popular and more famous? Who are people increasingly delighting in? And whose name is on their lips? And who are they talking about is to be Jesus and not us and not any of us? The one who is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. It is the manifold wisdom of God in display in his weak and foolish church, his power made perfect in our weakness, and his wisdom seen in our folly. So do not be ashamed of the church. Do not be ashamed of your Christian life and the weakness and the folly in it, but delight in what God is doing and in who we are because God is pleased through the foolishness of what is preached to save those who believe. And so maybe we can be pleased about it too. This is the, the wisdom and power of God on display in the church, but it's also modeled in faithful Christ-filled uh, Christ-centered ministry, and this is into 
chapter 2. You see, thinking back to what we're most impressed by and, and, and what our values are, will inevitably be what we lean into uh, in any ministry that we're involved in. Now listen, we've just got to be clear, it is so tempting to turn to worldly things when we think about church and ministry. But it is God's wisdom and power in Christ crucified that is to be the model of our ministry. Not only is the message seemingly foolish and weak, but so is the method. And so Paul refers to his ministry among them in his uh, 18-month visit. Let's pick up in two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you to test me about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Paul's ministry MO is cross-shaped as well. He landed in this cosmopolitan, this competitive city full of power and wisdom and influence. And he landed in great weakness and with trembling. Paul had arrived. He'd just been battered and bruised in the few places he had been beforehand. He was not successful in many ways where he'd been starting churches. He'd been put in prison. He'd been publicly beaten. He'd escaped a mob twice. He had been sneered at by the intellectual heavyweights in Athens just saying, you're an idiot as he shared the gospel with them. And so he arrives in Corinth, this massive big city with just everyone making a name for themselves. And he doesn't arrive with eloquence and human wisdom. He doesn't use wise and persuasive words, but he resolved. He made a deliberate and an intentional choice. When I'm with you, I'm going to know nothing amongst you apart from Christ and Christ crucified. And that doesn't mean he doesn't know anything else, or he doesn't understand anything else, or he doesn't talk or teach about anything else. It doesn't mean he's not thoughtful about what he's saying, but it's as if the death of Christ for sinners is all that he knew because it's the center of everything that he knows. And so everything that he talks about and everything he teaches comes back to that point of, of, of Christ crucified on the cross for them. He always ended up back there. That's all he really knew. And it's because he wanted their faith to rest on Christ and not on him. You see, here's the thing. We are impressed by what we think is powerful and what we think is effective. And so inevitably, we rely on that and we trust in it. You could say that's where our faith rests. If you think of your visualization of this impressive church back at the beginning, I set you up, didn't I? Sorry. That impressive church that people would be drawn to my guess is that for most of us, it leaned into many of the values of the culture around us. What looks impressive? What looks cool? What looks on trend? What sounds good and wise and powerful and loads of people and impressive buildings and all of the rest? I feel it too. In a world where since I last got to address you guys like this, you have seen 70,000 adverts. In a world where this year, over £40 billion is spent on advertising to you. People trying to get a message across to you and to convince you of something and to buy into their vision of life. In a world of TED Talks and supposed experts popping up in every corner. In a world of big brands and celebrity culture and social media strategies. The act of preaching, Christ crucified. It's not a strategy you'd even start with, is it? 
It's foolish and it's weak and it's rubbish and it's, it's stupid. It's got no power, it would seem. How's it going to shape and influence people when, when just 70,000 adverts since I last spoke a word to you? Honestly, there is a big pool in church for us towards leaning into, relying on any of these things to have an impact and a success. But if we are drawn to, and as we are drawn to do life and ministry around these values of the world and the culture around us, all that will happen is we will influence others to also rely on and trust in those things. Wisdom, power, coolness, popularity, wealth, and ultimately to rest on human wisdom. Because what you win people with is what you win them to. And so people will be won to this form of worldliness in the church, but just with this Christian veneer over the top. And it will not change people's hearts and it will not change people's lives. And it is not the way of Christ. And, because it, and so it does not come with the Spirit's power. But the plain and simple preaching of the foolish message of Christ crucified and the cross of Christ, that is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That's the message that's going to change the whole world and changes people's lives. Christ is God's wisdom. Christ is God's power. He alone has the words of eternal life. So where else can we go? To where else shall we turn? For from him and through him and to him are all things. So to him be alone be the glory and the fame forever and ever. Amen.